This is a WKYT podcast. Welcome. This is Sam Dick from WKYT, and this is my first podcast ever. Uh, Fortunate enough here to be sitting with a gentleman who has a lot of experience with flying and also detective work with the Lexington Police Department, Don Evans. Unfortunately, we have a somber, tragic um, podcast to uh, to deliver to you today and hopefully uh, fleshing out uh, some of what may have happened in the uh, crash that took the life of NBA legend uh, Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and seven other people, including the pilot. So a total of nine people killed in a helicopter crash uh, on a Sunday when they were heading towards uh, Thousand Oaks, California, from his home uh, for a girls' basketball game, and tragedy struck. Don, uh, in a unique situation, uh, has actually flown in that very helicopter, Sikorsky, and also actually flew with that very pilot. So he offers uh, a unique perspective to uh, the situation and a little bit about uh, what they were in and the conditions because he also trained there with the uh, L.A. Police Department. Don, welcome and thank you. Thank you, Sam. First of all, why were you in California uh, back in 2018 when you met this gentleman who flew Kobe's uh, helicopter and you actually flew in that chopper? I was there for recurrent pilot training, uh, just just the other side of L.A. Torrance, California. There's a, a Robinson factory training school, and to maintain your status as a flight instructor with that model helicopter, you have to go every 10 years. So at that particular time, I was there for that recurrent re- recurring training and made a choice to actually hop a ride in that helicopter uh, with, with, the, with the pilot. I didn't put it together until today, and I started comparing photos and going, wow, that, I think that, that's the guy that I flew with. What do you remember about that flight? Well, you know, we, we flew that in that helicopter from uh, Long Beach to Catalina Island and back. Uh, I, I, what I know about him is he was, he was looked upon by the other pilots there as their go-to guy. I mean, that's the impression that I got. You can always tell when there's a bigger dog in the room, you know. And he's he's just very nice and 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 smart, and uh, was willing to share what he knew. Uh, offered to to have everyone, you know, get up and and fly. That particular helicopter is they're not super common because they're so expensive and they're so big and and you have to almost have that in a place like LA or New York in order to justify its existence because it costs probably 4000 an hour to operate i mean it just burns more fuel than my little helicopter will in 15 minutes so it's sort of a new unique opportunity to get to fly in in that machine even for pilots uh but he he was you know he was awesome yeah it's a twin-engine helicopter. Why is that important? It is. Well, it's, it's important because that increases the redundancy for the helicopter. It's a safety thing. It also increases its lift capacity. You know, you had nine people on board the helicopter. And it's designed to wor- work in various roles as a model. I mean, it, it's, it's, work, it, it, it's used in military applications around the world. It's used in firefighting. It's used in air medevac. It's used in places where you have mountains that you want to get over the mountains. That's why you would have two engines. You know, so in California, that the ceiling increases, the lifting capacity. That's why you don't see them as much here in Kentucky. Yeah. You were actually training with the L.A. Police Department uh, at the time with the helicopters. Tell us about yeah. the challenges of flying 
in particular that area and in a helicopter? Well, th- there, there are a couple of challenges in L.A. that are that are sort of unique. I mean, first of all, the smog, the weather that comes in from the ocean. Uh, it can change very rapidly. Uh, it's a very busy airspace. So you have to deal with, with the challenges of air traffic control. Uh, they have a unique way of dealing with it in a sense that they have helicopter flight routes, which actually utilize certain highways uh, for navigation. So they'll tell you to fly this, this route or this route based on the highway that's below you, and then they'll, you'll make a turn to the north once you cross this area. So that, that's not unusual there to do that. I mean, in Lexington, they don't often tell you to follow New Circle and make a ride on Versailles Road. You know, it doesn't work that way. But there, uh, that, that's how it works for, for, uh, for, uh, for traffic flow. Let's put you at the controls of a helicopter on a Sunday in L.A. What kind of information and where is it coming from in regards to the weather? Well, the first thing you would do if you're going to make that flight is everybody gets their weather briefings now on their iPad like the rest of us. You know, you don't really necessarily call to get a, a, a briefer like we used to. So we'll, we'll assume that if I want to make a flight like that, the first thing I'm going to do is check what's called the METARs, which are current flight conditions, and then the TAF, which is the for- forecast, and make sure that those conditions are, are matching so I know that I've got a good forecast. It's not junk. So, But, but the, here's the problem. You know, on a day like we're dealing with on, on that Sunday, um, the, the weather was already marginal VFR. You're two and a half miles visibility at about a thousand foot ceiling. You're, it's not the most comfortable circumstance. I would compare it to you getting in your car and driving on a dark, rainy night. You can do it safely, but you're going to be on your, your best behavior, you know, with the road conditions. So that's sort of what he was facing. So you, you lift off and they say pilots fly, uh, uh reporting point to reporting point. So you, the weather is going to, going to change two miles from the airport. So you may make the decision, it's okay where I've lifted off here, but let's look ahead and see what it's doing. Does it still look good? Do I still have some place I can run? Can I turn around and go back or is it closing behind me? So those are the kinds of things you're thinking about. And on a day like that with the smog and the ceiling dropping and the terrain changing, you know, you might be flying along and you're, you know, 400 feet above the ground right now, everything's cool. But then you literally go up a mountain and now you're, you know, you're having to creep up higher and higher and higher, but the ceiling hasn't changed. It's still it's still where it is at a thousand feet, and now you're like, well, I can't get much higher without being in the clouds. Uh, so th- those are the kind of, you just have to keep an out. But there are things that that happen, distractions. You know, uh, I could see how a pilot could get in that situation where suddenly um, you look down to make a change on your radio to change frequencies, which he made several frequency changes. Uh, you're, you're changing uh, a, a navigational. A waypoint on your helicopter. You look down, you look up, and suddenly you're in those clouds that you were trying to avoid. Um, that can't happen. It does happen. Uh, we train in helicopters to never let that happen because unlike an airplane, it's really, in most cases, not survivable. A helicopter is not this, as stable as an airplane. If you get into the clouds or get where you can't see, it's sort of like putting a blindfold on, getting blindfold on and being spun around in a closet and saying, find the door. I mean, that, that's what you're dealing with. And, and so that's, that's where it, that's the first thing they're looking at is did that occur? Did this pilot, for whatever reason, wind up in that cloud layer? Did he wind up in fog that, that he didn't anticipate? Did he get distracted? And then what happened from there? Uh, part of his path included a point there for, I think, maybe at least 15 minutes where he circled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
What was that about, do we think? Well, I, that appears to be he had asked for what's called special VFR clearance. There, there's some, oh, sorry, there's some basic weather minimums, okay? So they're saying that if you want to fly in, in Burbank's airspace, as a pilot, you know this. You have to maintain three miles visibility, and you have to maintain a cloud clearance 500 feet below, 1,000 feet above, or 2,000 feet from a cloud. I mean, that's just something we all know. However, if you want to waive those visibility minimums and you still know the flight can be done safely and you can still see other aircraft, it's up to the pilot to request a waiver and say, listen, can't quite see three miles, but I'm 110% confident that I can maintain visual. You ask them, can I have special VFR? Their traffic controller really don't, they don't question that based on the weather. They'll question that based on whether or not they can keep you from hitting other aircraft that they see on radar. But they're not going to go, are you sure? I mean, because the weather report says they're going to go, okay, you want that? We're going we're gonna to give it to you. But the caveat to that was we can't get you across the airport right now, not because of the weather, but because we have so many other aircraft that are landing. So you're going to have to hold here. In that case, he had to fly in a circle for 15 minutes. So there was nothing unusual about that. Nothing unusual. But here's the dynamics of that. And I've been in that helicopter, and I'll tell you. This it makes a difference. You, you know, that particular helicopter, if you've got nine people in it, you've got passengers in the back, and suddenly you're circling, and you're dealing with maybe, and I don't know this, a couple that are non-flyers. You know, a helicopter is a different experience. You've ever been in one. you got some people that may be getting a little, you're banking, they may get a little airsick. It happens to me all the time. And you got the smell of jet fuel. It's a loud helicopter. I mean, it's, it's, it's an environment that can make people uncomfortable, which can sometimes lead to motion sickness. So I could see where... You get frustrated. You're like circling for 15. You're trying to watch your passengers. A couple of them look green, right? You're also watching the weather. You, you don't want to make a passenger sick. You, you don't. So all those things are going in, 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 into your mind there. A couple of them are scared. You know that. So you're trying to process all that. Your job is to keep passengers comfortable and to keep them safe. And, some, you know, and, and so that's, that's all the things that I know any pilot would be thinking about. And I could hear it in his voice when they told him, they were talking to another aircraft, and they said, uh, listen, we'll get you across in, in a minute, or something to that if I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some point, they told, this, they told the pilot, hey, uh, they, they told another pilot, we're going to get another helicopter in that's been holding for 15 minutes. That's, that's the conversation they had. He'd been holding there for a while. And his response to that is, we'll get you, we'll get you over in a second was, uh, okay, Roger. I could hear in his voice. It's like, listen tired of circling, but we don't know why. It could be, mm-hmm. as I said, all those factors. So finally they get him across, uh, and he's directed to follow the roadway. Um, and, and once he cleared Burbank, they, they, they basically hand you off from controller to controller based on the airspace that you're entering into. So they sent him from Burbank to the next controller. He made the switch. He literally has to change frequencies on his radio. He's got to put in that Burbank frequency. Got to look down to do that, right? Uh, and then you have to also fly the aircraft. It's like changing the radio on your car while you're driving, right? Same deal. You look down for a second, look back up. Look down for a second, look back up, right? Uh, it's just part of it. So in somewhere in that transition, I feel like things went, went, went wrong. And at at no point in any of this is there someone telling the pilot from outside the helicopter, you shouldn't be flying. It's not safe. No, they're not going to do that. It's up to you because, as I said, they don't know what your weather condition is in the spot that you're in. And, a, and in a helicopter, the, the advantage you have in a helicopter over an airplane is, in theory, you can always just land it if the weather gets, goes, to, goes, goes down south. You can always do that. And so the air traffic control knows that, too. 
So they're like, listen, if you want to try to pick your way there, we're, you know, we're just going to keep him. Okay, you've got to make that decision. And this, this is what goes on all the time with helicopter pilots. And, you know, what I like to teach my students and what I, what my motto is that I can't ever promise I'll get you to where we're going. I just promise I won't get us hurt. Mm -hmm. So that might mean that I have to divert or land somewhere else or change them. or change. I mean, and that, and that's every, every helicopter pilot's motto, any pilot, but in a helicopter, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. They don't make for you. You know, if you choose a landing area, it's not a big fancy airport that doesn't have any power lines and has an approach. That pilot has to make that decision. That's a safe place to land. And that can be complicated in a big helicopter like that. As far as we know, that pilot was the only pilot aboard. How much in, we're second guessing sure, here sure. a little bit. I'm well, we're speculating. We're speculating yes. on the information we have. What if yeah. there had been a second person on board as a pilot, uh, uh, to a co-pilot, let's say? Is that common in this situation? It's, it's not in a helicopter so okay. much. It it is a little more common in that particular model, but it's it's not necessarily a requirement. Obviously, it's not a requirement. I would I would be surprised if they would say that that was a requirement. Uh, you but 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 of course. You know, if you had another pair of eyes changing the radio, watching the weather, helping you in your decision-making, that helps. But we've also had situations where you've had two pilots and both of them wind up flying into the mountain. I mean, that, right. that, it's, it's all in crew resource management how it's done. So I, I don't, yeah, I mean, sure, it would have been great to have one. Could the pilot have declared some kind of emergency or distress? Because from what I understand, that didn't happen. He could. And, that, and that, what does that mean? How well, does that work? You have, it's illegal to go into zero visibility. It's flat out illegal without a flight plan. So that's federal law. Then, and every, we all know that. So if, if that, if somehow he entered conditions where he couldn't see anymore, you can't just say, Hey, can you guys, you have to declare an emergency because once you do that, once they realize they've got somebody flying in the blind, mm -hmm. they have to divert traffic all around you in a certain radius because they're like, we don't know where he's going. This wasn't part of the plan. So this, you know, they're going to basically say, uh, UPS flight, you've got to get out of here now. You know, uh, Delta flight, you got to get out of here now. We've got to help this hell. So we all know that. So yes, we're encouraged to declare an emergency, but let's, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, uh, you know, is that, <laughs> yeah. So, so that there's reasons that I can relate to that he may have delayed that. Such as? Such as the things I'm just talking about getting in trouble. You know, I mean, that's causing, if you don't want to do that, I mean, I don't know, but there, there are, there are reasons, you know, uh, landing a helicopter on the interstate with Kobe Bryant on board, you know, uh, th that's not your normal, that's going to make national news, mm -hmm. you know, even if no, no one, this would have been on the national news likely, even knowing. And so you're thinking all the thoughts you shouldn't have about that when we can we can look back and go I'm sure if this if this is what happened okay mm -hmm. I'm sure that it, we can look back on it and go why didn't you just land one clear emergency there's so many of those human factors and this is why we study these things in aviation we're going to get to the bottom of why this happened there's no black box on that helicopter that's it's not required um, so they're going to have to use the information they have uh, they're going to have to use the weather information eyewitnesses, which there were a couple that said some pretty dramatic things about how low it came over, mm -hmm. you know, and, and things like that. Uh, they're they're going to look at the maintenance records of the helicopter, and they're going to know the reality of it is, is the weather is, the weather's a factor even with, if you throw maintenance issues in, you know, but it's, it's probably unlikely if we're just, if we're just talking. I mean, everybody in the pilot world's going, man, I, I think we, we know what probably happened here. 
but that's not to say that they're going to find the Cowling door was off four miles away and there was a was an emergency, but it just doesn't seem the direction. That leads me to my next question, where we are going to speculate. What do you think happened in those final minutes? Well, if if in fact you he did get into a zero visibility situation, uh, then what generally happens after that is a pilot can become disoriented. Uh, you don't know up from down. You don't know left from right. You don't know if you're level or not. Uh, pilots tend to put the helicopter into a bank at that point. That's that's what happens. Then if you go nose down, it speeds up, and now you you have what's called a V&E on every cra- aircraft, which is a never exceeds speed because it causes structural damage. So you're trying to figure out whether you're up or down, whether or not you're over speeding. You have make, you ever been in that situation? I have not. You want to avoid that. Now, I've trained for that situation. We all do. We go in simulators. We put, we put what we call foggles on to limit our, our, our visibility so that we can, and then we are put in those scenarios and said, okay, how are you going to get out of it? Use your instruments. So I train people in that all the time and I'm trained in it. So, and so was he. So, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's the, the thing as a pilot that makes you self-reflect here, if this is what happened, but those, those are the conditions that you would find yourself in, you know, and then ultimately if like, we noticed the flight profile went from 150 knots, which is pretty much the the maximum speed for that aircraft, down to about 50. The altitude varied from 400 feet up to 12, and then back down. That is the bank. It, it just started a turn. All that's indicative of a loss of control situation to being disoriented. Those it's, abrupt speed changes. Those abrupt speed changes, altitude changes. You no longer have level flight, and and those are pilot inputs. It's up to the pilot at that point. To try to get that corrected, people say, "Why didn't you just? Why don't? Why wouldn't you just use the autopilot in that situation?" Well, most autopilots, uh, especially without an air of an aircraft, you have to be level. You have to be under control before you activate it. It's not there to bail you out if you lose control. There's, there, it's just not designed for that necessarily. That technology is evolving, and it's, and it's here now in some aircraft. But it's more than likely not in that model. It's going to have standards. If you're in twenty degree bank, you can't hit the autopilot. You got to level off first. So this, uh, especially at the end, you're just talking about seconds. He's traveling mm-hmm. at 161 miles an hour, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and you're in pea soup where maybe you can't see a thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it yeah. can happen quickly in terms of hitting something. It would, it, Yes, it's something like, especially that at low altitude. You know, if you were higher, then altitude is life. It would buy you some time. And, and as I said, that's the decision that the pilot, every pilot has to make. When you're low altitude, they, they call they, they, the 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 term in the business is scud running. You know, you're, it's where you're flying low and trying to stay out of the clouds and avoid obstacles. But there again, remember, in a helicopter, okay, you can, in theory, and you're trained to, you can always slow it down and land. I mean, that's the thought. That's why the weather minimums are lower. You know, in an airplane, there, you, you may not, you can't get a special VFR in some conditions in an airplane in some airspace. But in a helicopter, it's assumed that you can you can always slow it down, find an off airport place to land, mm-hmm. and land it. So because of that, you have a little more leeway. But boy, you know things happen quickly, and that's a very high performance helicopter. That the helicopters that that you generally see out here and fly, you know, I fly one that's the fastest it'll go is 130 knots. It cruises about 110. A guy they'll fly anywhere from 85 to 110. It's it's a slower situation. If you've got one that is capable of doing that kind of speed, then things happen a lot quicker. 
Right. Uh, but it will slow down too. So it's, as I said, it's all speculation. But it's but we as pilots, this this is a conversation that we're having. We're all self-reflecting, uh, and we're all trying to figure it out. And the people that that knew him and flew with him had respect for him, and we could all find out that there was a major malfunction of that aircraft. Mm-hmm. And and but but at the same time, everyone has this conversation. You know, as these things take years, the preliminary report could come out fairly soon. I mean, within weeks, maybe in this kind of situation, it's a little more complicated. But in the meantime, you know, it, we, we all have to take a look and see the information we've got and make decisions. I had the opportunity to interview and meet Sully Sellenberger, who put the plane wow. down safely, yeah. uh, was the hero of putting that jetliner down in New York City in the river there. And uh, when in talking about crashes, he said, Sam, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ugly fact, but because of crashes, we pilots and those of us in aviation learn a lot. And although people have paid with their lives, there is something that comes from this mm-hmm. that hopefully we can learn from. And even in Sully's situation, where no one was killed, when all that's said and done, they go back. Like, I, I had an engine failure, and I had to, to put an air, airplane down years ago in, in, a, in a field, you know, which is, which is not fun. But even then, they want to know, okay, so your only engine quit. Yeah, my engine quit. Um, well, they want to know what you did after that and was pilot error in your reaction to that a contributing factor in damaging the aircraft? I mean, it gets very technical. Sully went through that too. It's like, okay, you lost both engines. Why didn't you turn and go to the airport? And Sully's like, uh, I couldn't make the airport. Well, our flight profile, when we do the math, you know, two months later in a board meeting, we see you probably could have made that airport. And he's like, well, you, you know, you talk to him. He's like, I could have, I maybe could have made the airport. I knew I could make the river. I did what was safest for me, my aircraft, my passengers at the time. And it worked out. But had it not worked out, they would have said, why did you put it down in the river? You, you know, I mean, it's a, it is a second guessing game, but we learn from that. You know, I mean, that, that's what, that's, that's how it works. And unfortunately, when people get killed, then all, well, not, not unfortunately, fortunately, that's going to be scrutinized even more. All right. And so in this case, uh, you and other pilots will be very interested in the cost. It's something as a helicopter pilot, I would assume this is something that you want to know what happened. Well, you know what? I I told someone today, you, I want to know if if helicopters is going to fall from the sky. That makes me nervous too. You know, we want to see if there's an issue with this aircraft because that's, that's, not a good thing. So in the end, you're like, when you find out it's pilot error, at least you can try to learn from it and have confidence that it's, you know, if you do things according to how you've been trained and continue to constantly cross, ex- cross examine yourself and check, cross check yourself, that, uh, that that's not just going to fall out of the sky. So it's important. No, you know, Don Evans, thank you very much, uh, on a, uh, a tragic, uh, time that has affected a lot of people's lives that uh, watch Kobe Bryant and of course the families, uh, many families devastated by what happened here but hopefully uh, we will find out what happened and and learn from that and uh, aviation will be unfortunately in a tragic way better for that if you know what I mean That's the goal. Don Evans, thank you very much and thank you for those of you listening to my first podcast Sam Dick with WKYT Uh, appreciate you uh, listening here Uh, as we try to figure out what happened in the crash of the Sikorsky helicopter that killed nine people, including uh, Kobe Bryant and his teenage daughter.